Welcome to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Bolden Networks is unlocking the power of an interconnected future by bringing you insights from leaders in transport around the globe. Today, Chris Bichette from Bolden Networks is talking to Bronwyn Williams, a globally known futurist from South Africa, where they discuss her role in challenging norms, setting future expectations in travel, and reimagining transportation through connectivity, sustainability, and shared experiences. Bronwyn, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I, I would uh, like you to start because I, I, I am intrigued and curious. Uh, I've not known a lot of futurists in my life. And uh, I would love to hear from you uh, about your background and, and what you do and, and all about futurism. Sure. So I'm Brian Williams. I'm a partner at a small company called Flux Trends, where we unpack trends as business strategy for corporates, mainly in South Africa and a bit into that MENA region too. But essentially what we try and do is understand what's going on in the world, connect dots, notice patterns and get context. So we're very much expert generalists in all of strange little signals and trends coming around from the, the corners of the world. So almost if you want to use a terrible analogy, the contemporary equivalent of the, the watchmen who'd stand on watchtowers and medieval keeps and sort of scan the horizon, looking for the marauding hordes while everyone is getting on with the business of baking bread and trading and teaming up and doing all the rest of it. So we had quite a, have quite a luxurious perspective and if we're able to see things that are going on everywhere. But also because we are essentially professional outsiders, we're able to see those changes with um, less invested interest in what, what, which one of them sort of ends up playing out as, as time goes by. And to answer a question in terms of what's a futurist and what's not a futurist, I am an academically trained economist, although I have studied foresight and future studies too. And I think it's always nice to contrast those two fields because futurists don't actually predict the future. Whereas economists and politicians and political economists, most of all, predict the future all the time. You know, we make forecasts and we make those forecasts based on past data, on trends, essentially, on trend lines. And we extrapolate those forward into the future. And that's that's, that's who's making the forecasts. Futurists, however, is all about getting off that base case trend line, diverging from what has gone before and making sure, really, that past performance is not going to turn into future reality. So the role of the futurist is to challenge thinking beyond the base case scenario that is the projected trend line uh, upon which we tend to make our assumptions. And it's a very important role. It's also a role that raises eyebrows quite a lot because it's quite a hard role to quantify. Because the thing is, if you are a futurist and you are right in that you are saying you should move off this trend line and do something different, um, well, then you, how do you prove that? Because how do you know that it was you who actually said something that changed something into the future? And conversely, if you are making predictions that do end up coming right as a futurist, if your scenarios do play out according to that base case trend line, you've essentially failed at the role of the sort of contemporary prophet whose role is to you know, t- tell people about the, the consequences of their, of their ways and hope that, that those prophecies don't come to pass, right? So it's quite, a, it's quite a strange role to be in, but I think it's critical. It's also critical to understand that intersection between forecasting and foresight. Force, forecasting, of course, being a sort of classic thing that economists and politicians and all the sort of thought leaders that we rely on to make our assumptions about the future, that that's the, the role they fulfill. It is a, a sort of a narrowing lens in the future. It's about focusing it onto one point, whereas the role of futurism, foresight, is to broaden that perspective, to get that 
singularity point. Like the word singularity is quite interesting to speak of there too, because it is quite limiting. And where the sort of power in our role comes from, particularly in the features space, and also in the forecasting space, if you have an audience and people are listening to you, the, the power comes from the, the very tangible reality that our expectations do shape the future we end up getting. Most of the time, we get more of what we believe in than what we don't believe because we change our behavior according to our beliefs and our expectations about the future. And that's why it's quite a responsible role. As soon as you start talking about anything that comes next, if you change what people believe about the future, you are changing the future. A lot of metaphysical points at all. They will teach you this in economics. And if you speak to a central banker, they'll tell you exactly the same thing. A big part of the role is setting expectations and you change people's behavior in terms of saving, investing, and spending according to the expectations you nudge them to believe. And our role in the future space is really to challenge people against believing that the past is going to influence the future directly according to that base case trend line, that we can nudge ourselves off it. As scary as it is, if we start to believe that is possible, then that becomes possible. And conversely, if you believe that forecasted future is guaranteed, you're going to increase the odds that it will be, much like the great toilet paper crisis of early that was a, an excellent explanation. I have to admit, though, um, everything after about 10 seconds was was partially lost on me because you used the phrase professional outsiders. And I thought that was such an excellent phrase. Um, and and I, I, I consider myself, uh, we work in rail um, and, and communications, particularly, but in rail. And I consider myself an outsider. To rail. I didn't grow up loving trains and I didn't grow up in that industry. But I think being an outsider gives you a particularly different and advantageous view because all passengers of rail are outsiders to the system. How does out being an outsider gain you an advantage? It's it is an advantage, but it's also a disadvantage. It's a it's a difference. And that's what's that's what's important. And I think particularly when dealing with organizations or with people in the public sector. That outsider's perspective is, as you say, critical because it's not tainted by the biases of the of the organization and the industry itself. So we're not limited by what you believe to be the limitations of your industry. And we don't know what is not possible as much as we don't know what is possible too. So you're able to have that divergent perspective and to connect things in different ways that people that are zoomed in on the day-to-day nitty-gritty in whichever organization or industry they work in simply can't do. And that's why our USP, as these sort of professional roving minstrels, outsiders, court jesters, whatever you want to call us, we're constantly on the move. And we're never in any one industry or one company long enough to be tainted by the sort of nurture of that environment, right? Because that's what it is. You sort of become accustomed to, to the ideas and the thoughts and the way of thinking of the people that you spend your nine to five time with, whether it's online or in person. And that's what building an organization is all about. You should be all learning to think and act not identically, but to pull in the same direction. That's how you build a team that has any momentum towards achieving any sorts of goal, which we're not part of. We're rather there to sort of challenge what goals you are pulling towards and what those what those points that you are moving towards are going to be. So yeah, it's a role that's both exciting and all, not always popular because you are there to tell people what they need to know, not what they want to hear. And we don't have the same incentives that embedded long-term consultancies or full-time employees would have within organizations because we don't have a vested interest in short-term profit cycles, for example. You know, we're not going to get paid bonuses in the, in the sort of six-monthly or 12-monthly cycle. 
we get paid to do a project and then we move on, right? So our incentives are to make sure that whatever advice we leave behind uh, gets us recommended to the next the next project or into the next medieval keep to continue continue bringing us our strange perspectives on the world indoors. Oh, that answers your question somewhat. Doesn't sound too eccentric. So, so it sounds like that that experience it gives you a wide breadth of of perspectives of of all kinds of different things that tie together in the world. And um, so, before we get into trains, it what are what are some of the the things that uh, in in the in terms of work, leisure, the economy, um, the community. What, what sorts of things lay the table for us on how some of this background context might affect uh, our transit plans going forward? Yeah, I think that, that there's a big sense at the moment, so that's probably the most important trend that we can speak to that relates to your industry. There's this kind of sense that the modern world is not working for enough people. I think that's a really interesting way to start framing this conversation. I'm not sure if you've been familiar with the, the trends that are going around certain certain parts of the internet discourse in capital letters there with the so-called lying down flat and let it rot movements which started in china i'm not sure if you're familiar with those terms but they refer to essentially hashtags that have been badly translated into english because the movements very much did start in china of the young people saying essentially that either they are not going to participate in society as it has been handed to them or they're going to do the absolute bare minimum in order not to literally get into physical trouble, right? So this idea of if it's just too hard to do, just let it rot, let it pile up. You're going to goblin mode, as they might say in the more Western circles. And the lying down flat side of it is that I don't want an ambitious career because I don't feel like I'm going to get anywhere with it because it just seems too insurmountable to get from my current place to the place that I want to be, to be taken seriously, to contribute, to add value to society, so I might as well just not try at all. That's quite a depressing way to sort of start framing this conversation, but I don't think it has to be depressing. We see the same sort of weird dichotomy between absolute nihilism among young people in my part of the world, down in South Africa, and this idea that, that there's something beyond that nihilism that could come from harnessing that that sense of disillusionment into the next era of change. And the reason that I frame that conversation there, even though I know we're going to be talking about transit and very sort of practical things there, is that this idea that the systems and structures, particularly the systems around capitalism and democracy, are being challenged by the next generation of young people who are expected to uphold those systems. Because these systems that we take for granted are man-made constructs. They're not like they're not birthrights, rather they are something that we constantly have to work on. That is the whole point of democracy, is it's ruled by the people, right? Which means it's got to be a participative project going forward. And I think that when we start to challenge those systems, and you start to pull at all those threads, one of the very first threads to go is the idea of work and jobs, which is something we hear a lot about at the moment, particularly shaped under the under the, the sort of the labels of what's going on with artificial intelligence and how that's challenging it. But I'd almost like to say that the artificial intelligence question around jobs is, is a subcategory. It's almost a bit of a distraction because it's newsy and noisy. But the sort of bigger thing underneath that is this idea that the notion of what a job is, is under consideration. And it should be because the idea of a job, a sort of nine to five, a guaranteed pay pack at the end of every month, that idea is very much a relic or grew in tandem with the industrialization of the world, which is, as you know, of course, where transit routes came from, where 
where cars and planes and trains all came from this idea of the industrial era of humanity, which is, again, something that we take for granted, but it's the sort of physical infrastructure that underpins the social structures of capitalism, democracy, and globalism that we all kind of operate under today. And when we start to unpack that, you know, like the, what are transport routes used for on a day-to-day basis? They're used mainly to move goods and services. Yes, of course, to move, move uh, actual physical products, which are probably not going to go away at all. Also to move people around to jobs, from a place of work to a place of living, right? And this was something that we kind of took for granted for a couple of generations. But really, we have to understand that that sort of idea of a nine-to-five, of a work and life separation, of guaranteed incomes, of essentially selling out time in order to, to an employer in, ex- in exchange for some sort of physical and physical security, is, is not a, a normalcy for the greater history of humanity. It's, again, something quite recent that we built, and that this next generation who are lying flat and quite keen to let it rot might very literally start to unpack. And that makes us think about what is human movement going to be in the future if it's not going from place A to place B to that first place to that third place to that second place. What, what is it? How, how are we going to move around on a day-to-day basis? And you layer onto that, of course, everything that's going on with climate, which is like AI, the other conversation you absolutely cannot avoid at the moment. All the conversations around climates are again asking us to challenge the world order that we've taken for granted. This idea that transport should be cheap and abundant and something that we use every day. These notions are starting to be challenged, not just by the new generation, but also by regulators and legislators at the moment. This idea of concepts like 15-minute cities, about building nice places that you don't have to leave, which are actually very reminiscent of the idea of Ivan Illich, who was once an absolute fringe kind of academic. they now sort of taken kind of for granted this idea that we should be content within our communities and that we shouldn't build communities that we have to escape from on a daily basis. So all of these notions, much as they sound very disparate, when you start to draw them together, you can see there's the sense of asking why across a whole lot of things that we've taken for granted, including things that seem very tangible and very solid. If you think about something like a rail network, it's so tangible, it's so solid, and it's been with us all for living memory. You kind of think that these things are un- unpickable. But then again, when you start to see if you can challenge notions of capitalism and democracy and globalization, all these things are being challenged at the same time, we also start to then challenge ideas of industrialization and ideas of around work and ideas around where we live and who we interact with. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting way to, to start this conversation. I don't know if you want to unpick anything there. Well, it, it's it's funny the fra- phrases you used there, uh, let it rot and lay flat. Uh, because when you were talking about that, I was thinking of some transit organizations we've observed. So um, you're... Uh, you're your broad perspective there trends toward the negative. Um, it, it's, it, it sounds a little negative. I think there's a lot of what you said that is uh, very culturally dependent as well. So, but I, I, are you trending toward the future being more individualistic? It sounds like, or, um, you know, the 15 minute city is a more, uh, is a more community based thing, a more, uh, working together is thing and and depending on where the future is going to go that weighs heavily on transit because those perspectives exist in transit today so are we going for the negative 
or do you think uh, some societies may take a different approach to their dissatisfaction with government and, and stand up to make a change? Well, I think, first of all, I don't think that this is necessarily a negative perspective, although I think the way that I framed it could have could have come across as negative, but I think it's often useful to sort of put that wedge in and to, to make people feel a bit uncomfortable about these things. Because I think what I'm really getting at is that we are headed for a season of real change and that we can, we basically have two choices. You can either hang on to the status quo of the industrial age, or we can look forward to say that reaching a point of dissatisfaction and when you see this dissatisfaction is a generational perspective across the world with very different cultures everywhere from china to south africa to india to the us to europe you see the same sort of rumblings among a young generation obviously they all have different key pain points is you see that you are coming to a point of real change where a lot of the things like i said we've taken for granted will be questioned uprooted and then replaced or retained. Hopefully we'll, we'll approach these things like Chesterton's fence and ask why before we rip out the baby with the bathwater. You know, like we can start to see what we should actually hang on to, what's wise to be conservative about, and what perhaps we've become accustomed to, but we keep on doing or using, even though it's not serving our needs going forward. So I think that this is an opportunity to reshape things and to move off, as I said earlier, that base case trend line into the, yes, scary, but also very exciting white space that lies beyond continuing along the same tracks, to use a, a train-like metaphor, that we have, that we had before just because we had them before. So I actually think it's quite a, quite a positive thing. I think that generally when you've got a whole generation that's questioning things, that's when exciting things happen. And yes, there will be some things that are messy, but some things then become better. You almost see quite a lot of parallels to what happened with like the, the sexual revolution in the 1970s and how in the course of really just sort of 10 to 15 years, ideas around what family structures are, ideas around what the individual's role with each other and the individual's role with the state were really challenged in the 1970s. And we all lived through it. Yes, there was a great period of discomfort for certain people who had different values, sex, and were more conservative or set in their ways. But you know what? The world carried on. In fact, we had a pretty good time of it in the 1980s and 1990s, sort of all together, if you look at it globally. So change is generally a good thing and resisting change is generally something that you know older people tend to do. We do become more conservative as we get older. And there's always good to have balance between people that do conserve, like I said, Chesterton Spence, but also people then challenge ideas because that's the way things go forward, right? So you need to have both the brake and the accelerator as, as we go into the future. But I think that challenging things we take it for granted is the first step. And quite often when you see those things, some of those things we should be keeping, and there's some of those things that but we could be just simply using differently in different ways. And I think that that's, that's quite exciting. And when you start to look again at things like, as you are saying, the difference between individualism and community, uh, again, there's, there's room for both of those things. But the idea of what sorts of community, community really means, community is a physical thing or if it's more of a digital connect, connection and how we interact with those, those sort of societies around us. Those are all kind of up for grabs and can fall into very exciting different work. I do think that the future is quite collaborative and that individualism is something that has been traditionally quite a sort of Western value. I think we see, are seeing that being challenged actually alongside the ideas of, you know, growth at all costs capitalism. Again, nothing wrong with capitalism, but there's some things perhaps that shouldn't be capitalized, right? That there's some things that are better in the hands of communities. 
But the idea of being able to challenge all of all these set things is I think the, the starting point to building much more exciting features where we can have things that we only sort of dared to start dreaming of recently. I, I think your point on individualism versus community ties directly into into transit um, and and the discussions we've had on culture. I think um, there's a, a community in North America that you, you made it, you, you suggested it was a Western value. And we see that with the number of cars on the road versus amazing public transit elsewhere in Europe and Asia. Um, so, so the, this change, do you think it will have some impact on, uh, we can see the start of it now, the arguments about between cyclists and cars and, and drivers in North America. Um, do you think it will have an impact on the way North Americans particularly view transit? Yes, I think so. And this is, this is one of the symptoms, almost ironically, of globalization is that we've all traveled to each other's countries. If we haven't physically traveled, we're able to see what life is like in other places through our screens, through social media. And there's definitely a move towards humanizing cities and making the places that we live more human. It comes back to the ideas, the, the nobler, the more noble side of the ideas around things like 15-minute cities, making the places that we live, kind of like the working of Jane Jacobs, who works so beautifully about these sorts of subjects, making the places where we live rich and interwoven and breaking down those distinct silos that we have baked into a lot of our Western cities, and particularly in the Americas and in my country, South Africa, which actually models in a spatial planning perspective very closely the U.S., in that our suburbs are separate from our cities, that are separate from our places of manufacture, that are separate from our places of work. So we commute. You know, we are a commuting community, and I think there's very big similarities across large parts of the Americas, too. But we do spend time in our cars, which is, again, very individualistic and also not very sustainable when we start to layer on all the climate conversations there, too. But it's also not very human in that we are disconnected from our neighbors. You don't have those sort of interactive spaces like you would have on the much older cities that you find in Europe and again in various parts of Asia that grew up more organically and that were mixed from the start to mixed in terms of the times of day those places are used, mixed in terms of the sorts of people who walk on the so certain types of streets, mixed in terms of residential and in terms of commercial and in terms of production and in terms of leisure. Mixing all those things together just gives you a much richer ecosystem. And that is something that people want. If you look at visions of the future, the few visions of the future that are actually optimistic, and that is a criticism of my own industry, futurists do tend towards the pessimistic. And I've tried to work very hard myself to become a forced optimist. It's like my moral duty to be optimistic because what I say affects people's as expectations, affects their behavior. And the most optimistic visions of the future we can draw from in terms of illustration and in terms of narrative do tend towards, as they call them, kind of like the eco-punk future, where you have nature coming into cities, where you have cities that have more layers instead of being flat. They have more dimensions to them. They have a richness to them, almost like a natural ecosystem, which reminds us that even in a technologically connected, digitized, industrialized world, we are still parts of nature. I think that that's quite exciting. It's again, the, the, the writings of Jane Jacobs, something I always come back to when it comes to the future of cities, which is so different, like the Le Corbusier sort of planned environments. It's this idea of more organic growth. And that's why you sort of see the big contests at the moment are contesting for things like curb space, the future of, of curbs. Do you want to somehow commercialize and allow 
traders and allow environments to start flourishing on that space. But at the same time, you don't want it to be wholly owned and capitalized and sort of made desold in some sort of a way. So there is this there is this desire and this hankering, particularly in disconnected cities, where again you have greater issues of socioeconomic gender and even racial conflict. You see that more viscerally in societies that are more physically separated. This idea of drawing people together is so beautiful when it comes to transit. And I think that going back to the history of things like rail networks in particular and roads was this idea of connecting communities that had never been connected before and bringing people together. And I think that those ideas have such rich stories that we can build around when transport routes are designed to connect communities rather than to separate them. And that's the big sort of difference if you look at aerial photographs of cities that are divided with highways that you cannot cross, that there's no way for pedestrians to cross over, as opposed to cities that are connected by things like subways. We don't have public transport really at all in my country, aside from our infamous minibus taxi. And it's, it's, if you haven't if you haven't seen that, you should so do, do a Google search on a minibus taxi, yeah, which is basically their law unto their own, their relic of the pre-apartheid days. And they sort of fill in a gap that public service just simply doesn't have. So this idea of publicly owned transit that connects people rather than divides them. So I think a great way to think about future cities going forward, but also to think about sort of transit and connection, not just in the physical sense, but also in the digital sense. So it's like about sort of connecting those communities across both time and, and across space. So we're able to have these conversations being very different parts of the world. It's also part of the same connection journey and about sort of layering those connections across the physical and the digital together, again, just adds more rich layers to the human ecosystem that we could be building. Hingo, you said paints a, an optimistic picture for for transit and bringing the community together and uh, one that I particularly like, but there's still a mindset amongst people. You mentioned the highways in the sky and the, the roads dividing cities and so on. Uh, just, just uh, I saw just in the news this morning that... Uh, um, Prime Minister Sunak said he identified a problem in the UK that most people are dependent on their cars. And Lord Frost came out and said, it's not a problem, it's a good thing. In poorer countries, people depend on public transport and bikes. When they get richer, they want cars because they bring freedom. How does, I think, what is the ideal in, in bringing better community, or better uh, transit into the community, which is better for drivers too, by the way. Um, how does how do you how do you navigate that when you have this persisting perception that you know cars are for civilization and transit is for poor people? Yeah, I think that is quite a, a sort of again quite a, a wasted way of looking at things. Like there there are other perspectives that can say that a functional society is where rich people want to use public transport. Really, although I did say I just want to put that as a little aside here that. Um, in my country, we don't really have functional public transport. We did build what we called the cow train here, which was our very first essentially subway type system. But it is only designed for the rich because basically people use it to get from the rich suburbs and parts of the city to the airport. That's basically all it's useful, right? So we have like this very opposite idea where poor people use cars <laughs> and wealthy people will then use the, the, the fancy cow train that nobody else can afford to go to and from the airport to business meetings and, and holidays. Those perceptions can be challenged. They can be challenged with stories. I think that the feature of cars is that cars, yes, they can go places rails can't go because rails are built across literal lines. 
But at the same time, this idea that everything has to be owned by an individual can also be challenged. We definitely see one of the greatest sort of like trends that, we, that everyone knows about over the last sort of 10, 20 years has been the move towards the so-called sharing economy, whether that is sort of sharing clothes or infamously like the Chinese, the, the, the Japanese hotels and airlines now are going to rent you clothes for the duration of your Japanese holiday. You know, like I don't you keen on like, so like an air hostess choosing your, your holiday outfits for a week, but at that point decide. The, we're getting to the point now where the sharing economy is becoming normalized and the idea of multiple people being able to use the same car and cars being used as more mobility rather than as something that you own is, I think, a shift that is already being normalized amongst younger people. Maybe those shifts will never take place among older generations that have grown up with different perspectives around what luxury and what wealth and what privilege look like. But the shift from understanding transport as something that you own, you have to look after, towards seeing a service, mobility as a service, is something that we've, we've become normalized to across all aspects of our life. There's so many things now that we rent access to rather than own, not just housing. We rent access to the movies we watch. You know, we don't own DVDs anymore. We rent access to watch content on demand. And those perceptions are seeping through into our collective consciousness. So I certainly see the future of road mobility, as, as in motor vehicles, as being more shared. But at the same time, yes, sure, luxury motor vehicles, much like luxury watches, which really only rich people use watches these days, are likely to stick around. The idea of, of like very wealthy people having fancy sports cars that they take off that use lots of oil from desert sorts or autobahn highways, sure, perhaps. But as a, as a means of freedom, ownership and freedom don't have to be synonymous in this regard at all. And the ability to access the vehicle that you need to get to the place you need to go when you need it is really the ultimate luxury when it comes to transport. So shared multimodal transport networks is, I think, the trend that we have not yet seen at the moment. So at the moment, if you want to go and I'm planning a trip to Europe and it's very complicated because I said we don't know how trans public transport works and all that, to get from the airport to the place that you're staying, I have to go through like four different modes of transport all of which require a different app to navigate and a different ticketing purchasing system to get to. Like, how does the future connect all those things together that instead of purchasing a train ticket, I'm just purchasing the ability to get from my house to the guest house that I want to stay in, in say Spain or the UK with like a one seamless button. I think that connecting those various different modes of transport together is probably the next degree of consumer luxury that we're going to work towards and that we're going to start to take for granted very soon. Just like we, just five years ago, we didn't get groceries delivered to our door and now we can get them within what, like where I am within half an hour on an app and I live in the bottom of Africa. You know, like <laughs> the future, future comes with you fast. This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks, unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're delivering the advanced shared network infrastructures needed for a smart, inclusive, and sustainable future. From interconnected transit to venues, enterprises to smart cities, we're creating new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. To find out more, visit boldin.com. So, uh, you know, one of the things I think is evidence to what you're saying, this change in support and, and the general trend toward more of a community aspect of transit, is there seems to be uh, a resurgence in rail in North America. 
There seems to be a new love for rails. Um, there's anything in, in the projects that you've worked on in the context that you have explain um, what this popularity, some popularity of rail is in the, in an otherwise car-driven society? Yeah, I think they, they, there is a romance to rail. There's something about rail that speaks to the human soul, much like the printed book does, it's, that defies pure logic and, and rationality, which is, I think, an undenoted point when it comes to the future of business and value altogether, just as an aside. I think that the real source of value to human beings is seldom in the purely rational. A lot of it has to tap into romance that makes things worthwhile and gives us meaning. That's a bit of an aside. I think that the, one of the big key drivers behind the move towards rail is just how much more sustainable rail transport is per kilometer or per mile compared to the alternatives such as air or road. And I think that more and more people do have a consciousness or a conscience around their literal footprint as they get across the world. And rail's a great compromise. It's shorter journeys, like instead of taking a two-hour flight and then spending an hour on either side, you know, in security checkpoints, as is the, the way of the world, given the, our various insecurities and security challenges. If you can just get on a rail and get to where you're going within shorter distances, it is actually more efficient, even though you might be traveling a bit slower than air transport. And then in comparison to road, it definitely gives you less guilt. What I think if we can look at sort of the future of rail is how we are able to perhaps compromise a little bit in terms of obviously rail does mean that it's not quite, you don't have quite the same degree of freedom, as you said, as having a personal vehicle, but there are other perks that can come with it. Now, we spent some time in Japan recently where there's literally a train for every type of personality. It really does sort of sweeten that incentive, right? So whether you want to get on a Hello Kitty train or get on a fast train or go on a slow train, and enjoy the view, there's sort of an optionality that comes with it that becomes more of a lifestyle choice there too. So that the eco-sustainability conversation, definitely one of them. The efficiency thing is becoming more important, especially as roads become more congested, for example, and the cost. I think that as the general zeitgeist moves away from fossil fuel-based consumption due to taxes, due to increase in prices, due to increase in social shame, you know, the cost of traveling by more efficient journeys also becomes, you know, from a financial perspective, it starts to make more sense. So I think there's quite a lot of reasons for that, but don't discount the romantic as well as the practical reasons for why rail has a resurgence. I, I want to tie this back a little bit to uh, Bolden's background, Bolden's strengths, but um, there's a common thread through everything that we've discussed, some of the I won't call it uprising, but uh, uh, resistance, uh, the, the base level of malaise and dissatisfaction amongst people, the changes that are happening culturally, the changes in transit, they're all tied together through communications, through connectivity. And, and, and rail provides an opportunity for people to stay engaged because they don't have to drive and pay attention to the road. They can... What's the first thing every rail passenger does is they pull out their phone. So how has how has that connectivity shaped the picture of everything we've just talked about um, with uh, the the changes, the desired changes in society and so on? And and how does that tie into transit as well? Broad, very broad question. Yeah, well, you've absolutely nailed it. The, the one thing that humans always want, and this is something that's one of those deep trends that's far from the, the superficial noise, is this 
deep desire for connection with each other. We are very much social animals. And, you know, the international connectivity that we have now that we are so lucky to, and fortunate to have just sort of taps into that, that deep desire that we have to connect with our fellow human beings. And the ability to do that while we are translating, obviously that just makes everything so much better. And it adds just another incentive to take loads of transport like rail networks instead of cars in that you can then mess around on your cell phone for the entire trip without, you know, the risk of going to jail or causing a massive accident in your car. I don't know about you in the US, but we've got a very advanced, technologically speaking, insurance company that dominates our marketplace here that's basically pioneered the idea of putting trackers into both your car and into your cell phone. So if you are naughty and touching your cell phone while driving, you might not be covered for that particular trip. So their thoughts aside as to what you feel about that sort of degree of surveillance or behavioral economics, the point is that those sorts of those sorts of checks and balances are available to lawmakers and to insurers and that the, the, there are reasons then that if you want to stay connected and stay conversing with people that you can take other alternatives so we are able to do that for your entire journey it also taps into our kind of incessant the kind of darker side of our current society that i think younger people as i mentioned at the beginning are pushing back against this idea that we have a kind of sense that we need to be busy all the time and contributing all the time, whether that's to social media discourse or whether that's responding to emails or answering phones. And that's something, again, you can do when you're a passenger rather than a driver responsible for getting yourself from point A to point B. I think the challenges there are how much of those networks can be connected by systems like rail and how much of the, the last mile problem still persists. And that's that comes back to the design of our cities and the design of our communities and the distances and purposes that people have to travel on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And again there, I think that this does tie into quite a positive future for rail when we start to see again the future of work and how physically companies are connecting with each other. The latest data that is probably not going to make the, the employees that are perhaps listening to this too happy is showing quite clearly that fully remote work is not great for business, that fully remote employees are less productive and more wasteful of time than their office-bound colleagues. So there is going to be a move back to the office campus coming, but it's going to come with some caveats in that the hybrid lifestyle suits people and definitely gives us more happiness because that's the other side of the story for employers, that people that work remotely are happier than those that are captive in the office environment. We're going to see compromises there, but what we're going to see is instead sort of commercial hubs rather than CBD. So it's a sort of, again, a compromise sort of situation there. And also people perhaps not commuting every day, but commuting maybe once or twice a week. And this also tends to what happened with urban rural migratory patterns during COVID, which take a long time to unravel because of the sunk costs. Many people moved away from the cities towards the suburbs or towards peri or semi-urban areas that now have homesteads there. This idea of commuting to work is probably going to shift from a daily thing to perhaps a bi-weekly thing. Perhaps even the differences between migrating instead of daily, as I said, almost migrating, having a place that you stay in the weekend and then a place that you work perhaps during the week. So less frequent for longer trips, again, lend themselves towards kind of rail-based transit. I think that these sorts of considerations will be spoken about with lawmakers, policymakers, and city planners who are very much preferencing ideas like livable 15-minute cities and reducing commuting time for citizens for environmental as well as economic reasons. 
So I think that that's something, something to bear in mind when you look at the sort of future connectivity there. I hope those things are discussed in that, in that planning session or those planning sessions that happen. A lot of times they seem to get lip service, but uh, they, the, in the end, the end product doesn't consider a lot of these things, which is unfortunate. Um, on that, uh, are any transit agencies seeking the advice of futurists? Have you worked with transit organizations of any variety uh, to date? And, and what, are, what, are, what, are, what questions are they asking you? Well, I have to I have to admit I I'm in South Africa and we are a car driving country. Our rail network is literally falling apart. Like the the little rail network that we actually do have from the coast to the cities, it's falling apart to such an extent that our government is now um, trying to privatize it, but no one wants it. You know, like this is this is really the state we're in that regard. So we are a car driving society, and the transit work that I have done at my agency has definitely been around car manufacturers themselves. We simply don't have the infrastructure. And as you alluded to there, like infrastructure for things like rail networks and public transport is a luxury, but it's something that comes from government that's not very easy for, and there's pretty incentives for individual private companies to run with. Although I would contend that there's probably an opportunity there where there are not those sorts of spaces. So to answer your question on in, on the short, no, I've not done much work <laughs> with transit companies, have done quite a lot with car faring uh, more libertarians that should we say sort of um, future of motoring perspectives but again there are a lot of overlaps in terms of that shift from ownership towards sharing services um, some of the earliest sharing services in the world actually we tried out in South Africa we offered a testing ground for these sorts of things whereby people instead of purchasing a new car from a dealership will instead purchase a uh, it basically like take on a cell phone contract where every three or four years you get to upgrade your vehicle, but you just keep on paying a defined premium for the duration of your contract. You know, like those sorts of shifts are taking place, which again, I think point to a mobility as a service rather than this idea of I have to own a vehicle, a bike, a car, whatever it is in order to, to get myself around. So those ideas, those ideas are seeping through. They, they're permeating with or without policymakers consent or support your 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 framing of how rail works in south africa i've had family who lived in south africa and i wonder if the demise of rail is at all related to perceptions of safety and security and i raise that because i'm going to ask a really hard question um issues of safety and security are becoming increasingly topical uh, rising to the top of the list in north america um, I've described with my colleagues that in New York and Toronto, um, things are becoming particularly stabby in the underground. Violence is erupting and it's affecting people's willingness to use public transit. Um, I've, I've held that uh, it's not public transit's issue to solve society's problems. They have to deal with them every day. Is there anything in your background that, that could help lead uh, those societies to, to making public transit feel more safe and secure for passengers? How do we resolve these societal issues? Is there anything a, a futurist has a perspective on that, that could help address some of those things? Well, the key here is that what you're talking about essentially is fear and distrust. And a functional society has trust in each other and that trust is is earned. That trust is reciprocated by decent behavior by fellow citizens. And when law and order breaks down, that, that can break down, unravel very, very fast. 
but it comes back down to those those ideas of trust and i think this comes back again to those ideas of healthy social ecosystems now when i talk about sort of safety and security among sort of transport routes in south africa i'd say probably the biggest challenge public transport routes have there and i'll be honest our national rail was never really used for public transport it's pretty much used for for, for for shipping goods around it was never part of that connection we have been a car orientated society for a very very long time but it's particularly unsafe because of like say where stations are and how disconnected they are from the hubs of society how societies that feel safer that people can trust each other in law are societies that have lots of loose ties that have lots of people intersecting and interconnecting in both time and across space and again, then I go I refer back to the Jane Jacobs observations around the, the boroughs in New York that were functional versus those that were dysfunctional, those that where people felt safe and those where people felt less safe. And they weren't correlated with economic status. There's often a perception that poverty equals crime. And yes, of course, people that are vulnerable tend to have more bad things happen to them. That is true, but it's not a pro, like it's not it's not necessary. It doesn't necessarily follow the poorer communities have to be less safe. Rather, the communities that felt the less, less safe and were less safe were communities that were physically disconnected from each other, whether that is because rich and poor were separated literally by concrete highways that were uncrossable by people because cars dominated that space, or whether they were communities that were separated by high walls or communities where buildings were built in such a way that eyes weren't on public spaces where train stations were in back alleys rather than in front of thriving retail communities. And one of the easiest ways you can fix that is by making sure that points on vulnerability, places where people get on and off, off um, public transport networks, have thriving mixed-use environments. I think if this is such a healthy symptom of a healthy city, is a city where they're not essentially sort of barren wastelands that are devoid of the human interaction. And that's the sort of the irony when it comes to safety and security in cities is that more interactions between people actually make it safer and feel safer for individuals. Whereas you can very easily slip into vicious cycles where you have one negative encounter with people and then you try to put barriers in place to make your society more untacked. And incidentally, the untacked society is an actual policy that South Korea is trying to institute in its society at the moment where they're trying to limit human interactions and replace them with technology and every opportunity they can. Now, I, as I said at the beginning, futurists aren't supposed to gaze into crystal balls, but I'm going to suggest that any society that deliberately tries to limit human interactions is going to make itself much more fragile to acts of terror, to acts of crime, and to acts of disconnection. And that conversely, cities that double down on human interaction, whether those are parades, whether those are events, whether those are concerts, whether those are ability again to recolonize or to reoccupy that curb space and turn empty concrete spaces into places where people are connecting, trading, interacting socially or economically. That's the way that you slowly build retrust in society. I haven't said I'm not saying we've got this right at all I mean South Africa's got like the worst crime in the world but where there have been pockets of change and urban regeneration in previously barren hugely dangerous parts of the country they have not come from putting up higher walls they've not come from dividing rich and poor from segregating and trying to put up more security and more armed guards into places 
they've come from trying to make give people a reason to connect with each other, both culturally and economically. So I think that that's the, that's the best way we can address this. There's clearly no silver bullet to stop crime, but the way that you improve society altogether is by investing in the human ecology of the system. And in fact, there's now a growing role within corporations that are coming out of, instead of having just HR managers, you should also be hiring for organizational ecologists. And I'm wondering if we shouldn't also be at a public sector level hiring for, you know, city ecologists to look at the human ecology of our societies. Because again, we know this, like flattened forests that are grown purely for growing one type of tree to cut down for one type of wood are not very resilient. They're highly at risk of things like wildfires. They're highly at risk during droughts. They don't have resilience. They don't have all those different layers of mycelium networks and bugs and birds and all these things that build healthy ecosystems. And that's probably the best way we should be looking at cities. So that's why I love the idea of transport because transport is much like those mycelium networks. It's laying the foundations upon which we can build richer layers of ecology within our societies. And always looking then at how we are using those networks to connect rather than to divide. Again, putting up stations and stations that have different sorts of, of real estates and productivity and businesses and places to stay and places to play all layer onto each other rather than sort of transport networks that separate and divide communities into intractable sort of segments. You, you've triggered a pet peeve of mine in that, in that discussion because, um, I've, I've often held that we've built our cities wrong over here and we built our transit wrong. And I live in a city where one of the important points that you just made is that stations should be integrated within the community. We've, we're, we're building a new rail line here where there are stations in the middle of nowhere. There are, there are stations that you have to walk a great distance to that where nobody is. And it's, and it's often in parkland and things where nobody's going to ever live there. So I, just a little sidebar that that's uh, a huge uh, point for us about uh, our station, our work about stations, is that they should be integrated into the community at elements of the community. And that's an important part of the transit network. Absolutely. Although that's probably also an opportunity from your side to say, even if that's that's the problem you've landed, this isolated station that fulfills just a very singular utilitarian purpose, if you have access to that real estate, what else can you bring in to try and turn that barren desert into a garden that has multiple layers that self-fertilizes, right? Which takes a lot more work, but it's as it's about thinking about what tenants do you need to bring into that mix to turn it from something that's stagnant to turn it into something that becomes a living garden or ecosystem, which is, uh, it's not easy, but it's probably worthwhile. It's an opportunity, like you say, exactly. Um, we're coming up on... Whether it's a playground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're coming up on time here, so I just wanted to uh, leave you with one, one question. Um, you do a lot of work. You talk with a lot of people. You may not have talked directly with a lot of people in transit, but surely elements of transit come up. What are the what are the things that we are overlooking? What are the opportunities in the future that you think are being underserved right now and that don't get enough discussion? I think the one was the one that I touched on earlier, and that's the interconnectivity between different modes of transport, particularly the last mile, the ones that are connecting, like the challenge between having to use a car to get to a local station and then having to find parking for that car. How can we close those gaps to get the door-to-door -door seamless sort of area of transport sorted out? 
And then I think there's also opportunities around both horizontal and vertical integration. And this is a subject that I'm always fascinated with. And my favorite there is, is Amazon, of course, because I don't know if you know quite recently, they went so far as to purchase diamond manufacturing technology with Botswana, right? With De Beers Mites, because they realized they needed to get control over the diamonds to make sure they had control over the components they needed for the chips that they needed to put into the computers that they had inside their cloud warehouses that then power the logistics systems that power the goods that get to our doors, which is really talking about getting, talking about like severe vertical integration over there. But in terms of transport networks, I think there's also things we could be doing there in terms of piggybacking with um, with, with the telecommunications industry there, obviously, the what what can be doing in terms of, in terms of censoring, in terms of what else can be moved around what else do you want to keep an eye on when you're getting people from places A to places B and how to do that, of course, without being too creepy in terms of in terms of surveillance there. But yeah, I'd say I'd say how can you go deeper and wider? But again, that last mile connectivity of people, not just of goods, is I think one of the the big, big opportunities around transit at the moment. And we've seen that problem largely solved with getting groceries to our doors. The question is why can't we do that with with us too in efficient ways? And I think that the technology is pretty much catching up there. That's that's very useful applications for Internet of Things for artificial intelligence to optimize those routes. I mean, we all we all have that data. It can be anonymized. We don't have to do this in a creepy surveillance state kind of a way, but we can absolutely optimize our mobility to reduce traffic, to reduce congestion, and to increase speed from from entirety of journeys, not just seeing it seeing journeys as a as broken up pieces or steps. Well. Um... I think uh, that's our time. I, I really appreciate you spending time with us, Bronwyn. I, uh, you you are uh, quite well-versed in your subject, and uh, we appreciate your perspectives on transit. Thank you very much. I hope that was useful. Thank you for listening to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolton Networks. Follow or subscribe on your platform of choice to stay connected and keep up to date with the latest innovations at Bolton.com.